welcome to another episode of the Far Post podcast. My name is Marissa Lord Danik. Glad to have you back with us. Also glad to have a full pod compliment this week. We've got the the original Sam in these parts, Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington, and Angela Christian Wilkes, all back to talk more women's football. So let's crack straight into it uh, with some you love to see it. Samantha, since you're back, what did you love to see this weekend? Yes, good to be back. Good to usurp the second Sam, uh, taking my rightful place at the top of the Sam tree. Yeah, no, good. <laughs> Speaking of, my you love to see it this week was, in fact, Sam Kerr. It was her fantastic headed goal against Brighton, the Hove Albion. Uh, in a 1-0 win for Chelsea, it was reminiscent of the kinds of goals that Kerr was pretty famous for scoring in the W League, one of those ridiculous diving headers where she was basically parallel to the ground, uh, getting on the end of a Peniel Harder chipped sort of uh, cutback cross. It was just amazing, yeah. So you'll have to see Sam Kerr scoring goals. She's, you know, equal second uh, on the golden boot ladder of the FAWSL after a whole bunch of people thought that she would probably not be able to kick on in this league. So fuck them. Yeah, you love to see it. She's back. She's swearing. She's taken her rightful place as the top <laughs> fan of this chat. Far out. Anyway, moving right along. Harrow, what was your you love to see it this weekend? Well, it was going to be Sam tuning in to listen to her friends on the pod, but <laughs> listeners. <laughs> We've made that no, no. My you love to see it was from not from Sam Kerr, though that was a belter. It was Lika Martins, um, the Dutch superstar. It's a fantastic goal. Barcelona were playing PSV in the Champions League, and Caroline Graham Hansen's put in just sort of floated in this beautiful ball to the back post. And Lika Martins says she's almost standing still and she just volleys it and it gets the underside of the bar and it's an absolute just scintillating shot and unstoppable. And uh, it's, it's done that thing where it just clatters off the underside of the bar and goes in. So a genuinely, I guess, visually spectacular goal. You love to see it. Absolutely love to see it. And Angela, what did you love to see this weekend? It will come as no surprise that my you love to see it for this week was Eve's goal Um in West Ham's 4-0 win over Bristol City. Uh, yeah, I think we've just all described quite different goals. Um, Eves was really, I think, technically brilliant, I suppose. Um, Martha Thomas did really well to break away and get on the end, make the run down the right, and then she just passed it in. And it was quite a difficult angle, but Eve managed to sort of volley it around the defender. Um, yeah, the angles are really great on it. And, yeah, now she's equal... Um, third with well equal first goal scorer with three goals with Rachel Daly who she also assisted um, in their win so yeah really fantastic and we're big I think everyone's an Eve fan on this podcast but we'll definitely be getting into that in the future you'll have to see it you'll have to see it oh sorry you'll have to see it also I got to watch it with my dad which was really cute the one the one man merch machine I'm at home at the moment so it was great to to get some FAWSL in him. All our love to the one-man merch machine and we will be uh, waiting for you to relay his takes through the pod. Um, you, you did mention Eve. We will get back to her very shortly, but I have a you love to see it this week as well. Uh, 
friend of the pod, Ella Riley, tagged me in this on Twitter because uh, she knows me very well. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'd probably know this about me as well. I love Olympicos. I just think they're neat. And we had a game in the uh, in the Kiwi League. It, it technically was almost two Olympicos, but I've decided I don't care for that. I'm claiming it as two Olympicos. So uh, Waikato Bay of Plenty uh, skipper Michaela Foster scored two, well, one technical Olympico and one was headed on for another goal. It was an absolutely bananas match. Waikato were down like 4-1 in the 80th minute and then ended up drawing 4-4. So it was an absolutely bananas game. Had plenty of Olympicos, which I love with my whole heart. So Olympico, you always love to see it. Um, but, yes, as mentioned, we we loved seeing Emily Van Egmond's goal and we loved seeing Emily Van Egmond just put in an absolute shift. Haro, what did you make of uh, Eve's performance this weekend? I think it was a performance we all knew was coming. Um, one for the true believers, as we like to say on the pod. Um, we know what she can do when she's used the right way. We saw it for Melbourne City. We saw it for the Matildas. When she can use her, I guess, her smarts and her creativity and her composure further up the field, everybody wins except the opposition. And she just took that game by the scruff of the neck. It's um, There's a fantastic... Uh, uh, I guess the map of her touches that we'll have to share on Twitter from the FAW so just showing where she was receiving the ball. And it was pretty much everywhere bar, I guess, the defensive six-yard box, which you love to see because it means that she's not dropping too deep. She's not spending all her time mopping up or having to, you know, work with Mackenzie Arnold, I guess. She's getting up the field. She's being creative. She's assisting. She's scoring. Angela provided a great description of um, both of those attacking plays. And, yeah, she was genuinely the difference and we know that West Ham have struggled defensively and they uh they managed to clean that up but I think you know sometimes they are going to cop goals but you're always better off if you can at least score some and I think they're always going to be in a far better position when they've got Emily Van Egmond in these attacking areas um yeah I just thought it was I guess a masterful performance and it's the one that we thought would come Sam yeah, absolutely. This is the this is the Emily Van Egmond we all know and love, you know, and it was bizarre that she was deployed in a role for West Ham at the start of the season that she was so unsuited for. The kind of role that she played at the Women's World Cup last year after all those injuries forced her to be used as a six. It just didn't work. And now that she's finally being played as a more central attack-minded midfielder, which she has always been good at, West Ham are starting to win games. They're starting to score goals. This is like, it's just like what we, what we, what was Matt Beard thinking when he first brought her on board? What was, you know, what was the game plan for this player? She has been for a number of years, I think, Australia's best attacking midfielder. She has so much creativity. She has so much vision. She has so much technique. She needs to be in a team that is built around a system that involves a number 10. And so now that she's actually being played there, we're seeing the rewards for it. And it's great because Emily Van Egmond is a player who thrives on confidence. And so if she's playing in a position that she's comfortable with, that she's confident in, 
and she's actually racking up the stats, that means that she's going to be a better player overall. And it also means she's going to be better for the Matildas because the Matildas hopefully are going to be playing in a very similar system. And we saw like during the Bristol game, it was her, her greatest contribution really to a West Ham result. You know, she she assisted one goal, she scored another, and then she had a secondary assist in, in a, another capacity um, by, I think in the first goal, she had a shot on, on target that was then deflected in by a Bristol player. Um, and even the commentator said during the match, oh, isn't it interesting how, you know, Emily Van Egmond is now being played in this position. This could be and should be perhaps something that West Ham will look to uh, capitalise on in future if slash when they bring a new head coach in. So, yeah, it's just great. You know, it's it's really it's always really great to see Emily playing well because she's a, an amazing player um, and it's important for West Ham to be using her in the ways that she can be used. You know what I've really loved as well is it's something that and we've talked touched on it on this pod before is how much she's using her headers. Like we know that she is a tall player. She's a tall midfielder. She's an attacking midfielder. Um, it's something that players like Lindsay Horan, for example, does really well. She's an, obviously an elite header of the ball as one of those taller midfielders. When you can add that to your game, it just adds so much to be an aerial threat. Even if you're not always successful it at least makes defenders stop and think. And I think that's something that I don't know if she's done it intentionally but it, or if she's worked on it, but I think it's something that's come to the fore a lot more. Um, and I think it's also worth remembering when we're talking about Van Egmond's qualities is she's played in Germany. She's played, I think, in Denmark as well. She's played in the US. She's got a lot of experience in different leagues. She's learned how to unlock a lot of different defences. So I don't know if initially the thinking was we don't have a better six option at West Ham than Emily Van Eagle, but they certainly didn't have a better 10 option. They certainly didn't have a better creator. And I know we know that West Ham brought a lot of quality in, but if you're not deploying them, um, I guess, to the best of their abilities, what's the point? You're gonna, it only ends in one way and that's fighting for relegation. So you'd hope that this, I guess, kickstarts them just deploying her in her best role and making the most of it and her hopefully getting some of the plaudits that she probably deserves after an exceptional 2020 even before she even came into this team. Yeah, and I think also it's, I don't know, um, for me the service that West Ham can provide down their wings is matches so well with, yeah, like you said, Anna, a player who can just get on the end of those balls and nod it in and have that height and that strength. Um, also, I suppose this was West Ham's first clean sheet um, so far for the FAWSL this season. Um, so there's a lot to be said about, I suppose, deploying your players in a way that's more active than perhaps reactive because, yeah, um, Eve can play as a defensive midfielder and maybe you want that sort of um, experience and leadership back with your defence because, as I've mentioned before, they do have quite a young backline. But you sort of have to lean into being like, well, we just have to let them do their thing and um, just have to lean into that and be like, well, this is where Eve, this is what she does best and let's put her up there. And I've noticed usually I think especially with Melbourne City, a lot of the goals that she scored were quite – she has like a lethal like shot from the 18 yard, but we haven't seen a whole lot of that this season. Um, those three goals of all um, – I think one of them has come off the head. There was that volley. I can't remember what the third one was, but they're all they're adding like new skill sets um, and new little new 
character to the way that she can play. So uh, that's what's really exciting for me to see her like expand on what she already has and um, that talent that we already know she has as well. So, yes, very excited to, well, yes, very big believer. We love the the believers, the true believers. Uh, so as we said, it was a, a 4-0 win to West Ham against Bristol. So I suppose then the flip side of that is Bristol. Um, they have yet to win in the league. It doesn't look great. Angela, were you the one who put in our show notes, Bristol, are you okay? Yes, yes, that was. Would you like to elaborate on your thoughts and feelings about Bristol and their season so far, and especially this game against West Ham? Uh, I just, I feel, I feel, I don't want to feel bad for them because um, that sort of gives into the idea that it's already a little bit over. I think Aston Villa beating them four nil for me was sort of like, oh my god, how are they going to get? back from this Um, and I suppose I'm not a coach so I'm not really sure how you approach that situation and what you do to get the best out of your players when you're looking at a pretty bleak outcome for the rest of the season I'm not we've I think we've talked about this before as well like the the resources available to Bristol and where they sort of sit in the pecking order of English football is quite different to a lot of the counterparts in the league so yeah I I do feel, and they had that rough trot with the having to bring in academy players. They have a really young side. So no one was expecting them to win, you know, any silverware this season. But I was, I would have hoped by now there would have been a little bit more of a contest or a little bit of a um, closer, some closer games for them, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much more to add. I'm just... Oh, nervous. Uh, Sam, please provide some more articulate sounds than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you ask a good question. Like we're we're a third of the way through the season now and Bristol don't seem to be doing anything. And you sort of have to start asking at what point does this turn from a – league in which they try to get some sort of result and in which they try to finish as high on the table as they can to a league where or, or a campaign where they try and give as many competitive match minutes to these young players as possible because there is this sort of resignation that they will likely be relegated. Um, you know, one of the sort of surprising choices from Tanya Ox to be on the weekend was that she didn't play Ebony Salmon up front. Ebony Salmon is young, you know, she's younger than 20 years old, but she's an extraordinary talent and she's been on England radars for a really long time. But she's constantly being brought on as a sub. I don't know why at this stage in the season you wouldn't be starting a player like that. You know, she's going to be someone who is going to be part of some sort of setup in some significant way in the future. And I would like to think that the role of a head coach like Oxtoby, with a crop of players as young and inexperienced as she has, is in a position of responsibility to be trying to give these players the kind of environment and the kinds of match minutes and the kind of combinations on the field that will contribute to their careers, not just the future of the club, because, uh, you know, for a variety of different reasons, I think it's pretty clear where Bristol are heading, um, on the women's side at least. 
and so the next best thing is to give these players the platform in order to go on and do bigger and better things. But she doesn't seem to be doing that either. So, yeah, I don't really know what's what the go is um, and it's it's just, yeah, it's not, it's not fun to watch. I, I do know that, so um, I did watch a little presser where she mentioned that they had eight games in, not eight games in three days, Lord, three games in eight days. So um, she brought Salmon off the bench just to sort of manage that. So I suppose, again, they've been um, thrown around a little bit by the COVID situation because that midweek fixture wasn't even their postponed game. That was Aston Villa's postponed game from like, back in round three or whatever it was but yeah I definitely see what you're saying there Sam and I suppose not having having someone like Chloe Lagaza out someone you might be looking to to have a more a, a leading role in the side would definitely impact all of those little things would impact I guess the the um vibes around the side I mean at some point like You've surely got to call it and, like you say, Sam, throw caution to the wind a bit. They've already got a goal difference of minus 34. Like, that's huge. And then when you look at, uh, I guess, who are near them, Aston Villa, who are four points ahead of them with a game in hand, they are on minus nine. And then you've got West Ham and Brighton, who are on seven and eight points respectively, minus 10 goal difference. Like, and then it sort of just tails off a bit as you go further up. But it's just such a huge deficit to make up. Um, and when your goal difference is that bad, you really just have to get wins because you've got to get points. Like you're not going to be able to save that goal difference. It's, you know, you're 25 goals short of the, I guess, 24, 25 goals short of the teams around you in terms of goal difference. So it's going to be a really difficult one as to do you try and grind out results, see if you can snare a one nil win, which they've nearly done a couple of times. Or do you try and just throw caution to the wind a bit? Like it's it's a really difficult situation because I think at the end of the day, if you're in this relegation scrap, it's all about points when you when you've got that sort of goal difference. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how they try and handle that because, yeah, like I say, it's one way or the other. I would like to think as well that um, Bristol, as a as a general club, will perhaps react better to the threat of relegation. Um, than Liverpool have, for example. Mm. Um, if if Bristol do end up going down, I would like to think in my heart of hearts that the club more generally will pile more and more resources into the women's team because Oxaby has said repeatedly that they don't have the as you said, Angela, earlier, they don't have the kinds of resources that can match the clubs that they're having to compete against week after week in this league. Uh, it's not to say that they can't, it's just that they don't have the structure around them that that enables them to do so. So that could be the silver lining to the whole thing. If Bristol does end up being relegated to the championship, they could actually bounce back uh, in a way that we we may see of Liverpool this season. Um, And it'll be, yeah, I mean, even more of a damning uh, sort of comment on the fact that Liverpool haven't done the kind of things that they should be doing um, if Bristol are able to sort of cope with the championship and bounce back up again. It's very much a case of we'll, we'll see how the, the second part of the season goes. It might be New Year, New Bristol, or it might be a, a very long couple of months for Tanyok's Toby's side. Uh, in terms of other FAWSL results, uh, we had Man United continue their winning ways, beating Reading 2-1. Uh, 
Uh, as mentioned, Sam Kerr's goal was enough for Chelsea to beat Brighton. Uh, Rianne Skinner and Tottenham are two from two under her tenure. They beat Aston Villa 3-1. And then the the big game from this weekend was uh, Man City Arsenal with Man City coming out on top 2-1. I suppose we're, we're going to focus not necessarily on the game itself but the kind of wider top three, top four chat and particularly what this loss means for Arsenal. Um, Sam, did you want to explain, I suppose, Arsenal's kind of really shocking record against fellow top three sides? Yeah, Arsenal just don't seem to know how to do this. This has been something that they've struggled to do for seasons now. You know, they can completely steamroll uh, teams sort of outside of the big three. But when it comes to Chelsea and Manchester City and now perhaps also Manchester United, they really struggle. And I think it's a, it's a multi-pronged problem. Part of it is the fact that these teams are increasingly getting better. Uh, they're recruiting better. They're having players who are able to match the kind of uh, talent and experience and quality that Arsenal have had for a long time. And also, I think, again, as we've spoken about in previous episodes, Arsenal are, are being figured out in a lot of ways. You know, they they do rely quite heavily on a couple of key players, Miedemar obviously being the, the main one. And we've seen in, in this season even, we've seen her quite easily marked out of the game by smart defenders. You know, the game against Manchester United was a really good example of that. Um, you know, bringing in a, a player like Caitlin Ford offers something different. Jill Rod offers something different, obviously, as well. They've scored a bunch of goals together. But, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to be like uh, Arsenal are facing the possibility that they are perhaps not as great as they thought they were um, and maybe not as versatile as what they thought they were despite recruiting um, these kinds of players. But I'm interested to see what Angela thinks because I know that she's been following it far closer than I have. Do you, by it, do you mean Vivian Miedemar? Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually my point was I, I thought it was quite interesting. The So Viv scored in the third minute of this game it was like a defensive error from another one of my favorite players Lucy Bronze well sort of it was like a really poor pass in and then Kira Walsh couldn't get to it and Viv was just like sorry was that too much um and a lot of people were like responded they're obviously responding to that narrative around Arsenal, well, not narrative, fact around Arsenal not being able to get it together for these big games. But they seem, I think some people, I think we've come to the realisation it's not Viv that's not like pulling it out in big games. It's like definitely you you just can't rely on her. Like she can score, but you need to rely on like, for example, Arsenal's defence. That first goal, I have a quote from my father here actually. Um, so it came in from a corner and then poor Lids, she came off her line and then it was just like nodded in by Sam Mewers, who was able to get around into it um, and get out of that like sort of clutter to score and equalise. And my dad said, there we go, Lydia Williams. Flap, flap, flap. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Um, <laughs> bang. Typical, and he said, typical Lydia Williams conceit. So I can say these things because it's not me. The, these <laughs> harsh truths and 
I'm just on the fence here, but it was a case of, yeah, also like um, I think it was the second goal as well was just like a poorly cleared ball that bounced off Leah Williamson, landed at Caroline Weir's feet, and she just banged it in. And she's she was testing them the whole game. She shouldn't have been given that kind of space. So part of me is leaning towards it's more the defensive performances, but again, they are losing by sometimes by quite a bit. It's not always a slim loss for Arsenal there. So I don't know. It's At this point, it's got to be a mentality thing, right? It's like something you'd got to unpick some sort of cog in the team psyche to fix this. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. But Anna, what do you reckon? I agree, Angela. I think it has to be a mental thing. Some ripper stats on this to follow up what you and Sam both said about this big game against the big team things. Um, Friend of the pod, Amy Rusky, wrote this for goal saying that it was uh, they have just one point from a possible nine against their title rivals this season. They haven't beaten any of their big rivals since October 2019. We know they lost to Chelsea in the Constitup, City in the FA Cup. Um, we know they had some injuries early, but there's also been moments where they've missed opportunities. Um, I think you're right that the defensive lapses are really concerning. For me, there's another, and this is going to sound really simplistic, but I don't know if they've got that mongrel that some of the other top teams have. They are like a very nice team. Like we know that Vanderdonk gets a bit feisty and puts in the odd tackle, but when the hard work has to be done, you look at Chelsea's forwards, they do the hard yards, they press, they work, they tackle, they chase. Um, Their defenders are just so solid. Manchester United's defence has been rock solid and Sam and I were talking about this before the the pod as well like just when you're right in the mix you have to be so solid in defense and I think you have to be ready to do the hard stuff with your backs to the wall and it's not to say that this Arsenal team can't do it it's just that their title rivals have shown that they can really grind out games get their way through you know like Arsenal in this game we're talking about probably went for the win late and then they've stuffed it up and come away with nothing from that from that game. Um, I don't know if it's lacking a bit of pragmatism or if it is just the occasion gets them, but this is a team that won the league two years ago. Like This is not like this is a team that is on a championship drought for eight years or something. Like This is a team that should be right in the mix, that should be competing, that shouldn't have to rely on, I guess, consistently getting big scores or consistently beating lower teams. Like, they have the personnel. They don't have the injuries now. They should be able to go toe-to-toe with these top teams and come away with the result. So um, there was actually quite a good quote that um, Amy used from Joe Montemiro. Montemiro said, we can't seem to get over these mental blocks, these abilities to be smarter in these scenarios. Um, it's a problem and we need to address it. So they understand it. And as to whether it's a mental thing, we both agree, Angela, that there is surely an element of that to it. But they're a good enough team to be able to push past this. They've got plenty of winners. They're not inexperienced on the big stage. Um, I don't know whether they need to change things up a little bit or maybe mix up personnel a little bit, but there's certainly some work to do. Yeah, maybe they just need like a, an Elo Master Antonio Chihuahua energy player <laughs> in <laughs> in their like defensive mids. Who, who do they have there at the moment? I'm trying to – oh, this doesn't you – know, uh, Leah Volti. She's injured at the moment, I think. Yeah, she's not. She's not scary. (laughs) Uh, Scary ranks. Who's number one in the scary ranks, Angela? Oh, 
Magda Erickson. Yes. Center back. Yes. She's girly. Anyway, I'm afraid of her. Let me think. There's also yeah, that's the the first person that comes to mind. I could definitely probably do a more more comprehensive ranking, um, but you'd need to give me a little bit of time there. Yeah, but I mean, like play, players like not to go full scary rankings, but you know, players like Mewis, Even when Sophie Ingle plays for Chelsea, like you know that all these players willing to get stuck in. They do the hard yards, and we know that Arsenal do have an element of that. But I think when it's backs to the wall, you want to know that your team can turn up. When they can't play their fancy football that's really, you know, nice to watch, you want to know that your team, when things get ugly, they can win ugly. And I think that's maybe what's lacking a little bit with this Arsenal team. Can we talk about the defenders for a minute? Yes, we can, Sam. Like This was a game where, you know, we when we talk about the big three, we talk or the big four. I'm going to reference the top, the big four now because I think Manchester United need to be considered in this conversation from now on. When we talk about the big four, we talk about, you know, attackers. We talk about forwards. We talk about strikers. We talk about, you know, attacking midfielders. But we very, very rarely talk about defenders. And I feel like this was a game where the uh, – questions about certain defenders on certain teams need to be asked. Lucy Bronze is the most obvious example, I think. She has not had the greatest start to this season, to be honest. Um, I think she's been pretty underwhelming considering her reputation and considering the kinds of titles she's won. She's made a number of pretty terrible errors. She made a really terrible pass against Manchester United that Tobin Heath capitalised on and scored. Um, and she she gave away again the the pass that led to the equaliser in this game as well. Um, and on the other end of the scale, Leah Williamson. You know she's she is young. Uh, she's adored by the English media. She's been part of Arsenal her whole club career, and that's great. But also she's she's pretty liable to some you know to some clangers. I have to say, mm. uh, you know every, every defender is, and that's fine. And she's still young. She's still learning, but. Yeah, I mean, when it when it comes to talking about how solid and how title winning these teams are, I think we do need to look at at the the kinds of defenders that they've got backing them up to. Is it uh, forwards win games, defenders win championships? Indeed. I didn't realize until quite recently that Leah Williamson was actually um, brought moved into defence, I think, by Joe Montemuro. Um, so she used to be a midfielder. Mm. Um, and you can definitely see, like, her distribution, like, that that skill set, that's where that classic midfield, well, not classic midfielder, but that midfielder skill set is coming through. But it is those, perhaps, that lack of urgency sometimes that, yeah, we have seen some oops-a-daisies. Um, but, yeah, I don't think Arsenal have a scary defence. And they don't have – also, in saying that Lucy Lucy Bronze has had not the best start to the season, but she definitely has that drive, which was discussed in the Guardian Top 100, which we will get to next week. But, like, she can attack and she can win things back as well, which I don't think Arsenal really have anyone quite like that yet. It's the grit, isn't it? Like, it's the – when I think grit, I think the classic example is the – I guess the Chloe Legazzo miracle in Montpellier game, the desperation to win the ball back, get things back on your terms, things are going against you, you find a way to make it happen. And I get the impression that players like your, your Magda Eriksons, for example, um, if you're looking into your defensive midfield, when Sam Mewis is in there, they are desperate. They just want to have an impact. And if things aren't going their way, they don't suck about it. 
they go hard and then they go harder a little harder um <laughs> Wait. but they yeah that's that and that's what you need um and as sam said there's more and more resources coming into the women's game there's going to be more and more contenders it's going to get tougher and tougher and that means that the teams are going to get tougher too because you're going to have more and more scraps where it's not necessarily the most beautiful football despite the skill level of the teams because the pressure's so high and the work rate's so high and if you can't go with it you're going to get left behind and the team that really encapsulates that sort of mongrel spirit for me is Manchester United. I think they've had the best defence of any team in the league so far. They're just extraordinary to watch. They they would run through walls for each other. They would run through walls for Casey Stoney. And we've seen them throw themselves all over the pitch in order to win single points, you know. It's really inspiring to watch that team and, and that particularly that back four do the things that they're doing. And it's such a contrast to an Arsenal, for example, who just, you know, it's an almost complete juxtaposition. They just don't seem to have the same grit and the same determination to do the kinds of things that those Manchester United players will do. And perhaps that comes from, uh, you know, sort of skating along for a while, um, sort of becoming acclimatised to being a top dog. Manchester United still have a point to prove. They haven't won anything yet, really. So they're probably coming into this season feeling like they need to try that extra bit harder to prove themselves and to to prove to others that they can do it. And I think that they're definitely doing that and perhaps Arsenal could learn a thing or two from it. And there weren't too many more, I guess, uncompromising defensive players than Casey Stoney um, in their heyday as a player. So uh, you wouldn't want to be letting down a manager like that. So I think it's pretty um, understandable why they run through walls for her too, Sam. Oh yeah, I had I had a very confusing conversation with my dad um, about Casey Stoney. We were watching the Reading Man U game, and he said Casey Stoney needs to get herself a white fedora and a big cigar if she's going to wear that coat. <laughs> had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> he is referring to Malcolm Allison, the f- very well known coach I thought it was a great little analogy once I actually did the Google he told me to Google white fedora and it was just coming up with stuff from ASOS but we got there in the end yeah. <laughs> I know I, I, I just did a little uh Malcolm Ellison Malcolm Ellison coach search Angela and uh I see where your dad's coming from it's a bit more fur lined this coat than Casey Stoney's but she's got style she's definitely the man's got, got a point the um the only thing hotter than your dad's merch is your dad's takes, and I'm I'm very here for it. So um, it's good stuff. It's pretty unfiltered. It's always a good time. It, it's good for the pod. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that's FAWSL. We've got another round next week, and then a little Christmas break. So we'll obviously be all over what football is happening. And speaking of football, that is happening. We're recording on a Tuesday night, so. This is going to come out uh, probably the same time as results are, but we do have more Women's Champions League. The second legs of the round of 32 ties will be happening very, very shortly. Um, we we picked Juventus Leon as kind of the, the pick of the bunch and it definitely delivered in spades. So we will talk more about which teams have qualified for the round of 16 next weekend, but you can tune into all of the Champions League games on Sports Flick, which we mentioned last week. It's 
great that we can watch more games. So definitely check it out. In terms of where things stand at the moment for our Aussies, we had Ellie Carpenter's Leon eventually get the win. Alex Chidiak's Atletico Madrid got the win as well. Uh, unfortunately for Amy Harrison and PSV, they got pretty uh, well done by Barcelona. Uh, ditto Vesna Milijojevic and Spartak Subotica. Uh, Carly Rosbach and LSK was in the winner's books, as were Fortuna Horing and uh, Indy Page Riley. Uh, Chelsea ended up getting the win against Benfica, even though Kerr was not on the pitch. And Aoife Colville's Glasgow City uh, lost to Sparta Prague, but only by a single goal. So that should be an interesting game to watch as well. But as I said, we'll get into that in more depth next week once we know the actual state of play. Anyway, let's transition into dub chat. We have more signings because we are very close <laughs> to the new season, to the point that before we started recording this, I was shocked that it's literally next weekend. Um, Time's not real. Anyway, we had Perth announce a whole bunch of signings. We started to see the beginning of uh, Alex Parkes' New South Wales connections with a few signings from that competition. And we had Mariana Tabane and Katarina Jukic, who are familiar names from a few seasons. Uh, In terms of down here in Melbourne, we had Natalie Tatham officially announced as a victory player and Mel Meisels and Gabby Garten will be uh, battling for the number one keeper spot. Uh, Claire Polkinghorne has returned from Norway and will, of course, be donning the orange of Brisbane Raw, which you absolutely love to see. And then we had Jenna McCormick also return. We flagged that she was in hotel quarantine last step and were wondering where she was going to end up. And it's at Melbourne City, which makes a lot of sense, to be honest. It's a it's a great signing for City and a great signing for Jenna, um, not just for her career, but I suppose from what she's just gone through. Uh, During her presser, she mentioned that she wasn't having a great time in Spain with Real Batiste. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting um, about face, not just from Jenna, but a couple of players, you know, have have returned to the W League after uh, seasons abroad and – there seems to be an ongoing theme with these players, which is that if you're not at a top, top club, uh, you don't exactly get the kind of treatment or the kind of professional environment that you were perhaps expecting. Uh, Jenna McCormick cited the fact that the language barrier was really difficult for her to overcome, um, but also she's playing for a club in Real Batiste who are not doing particularly well. Uh, they haven't done particularly well really ever in this league. Um, and so when you sort of look further down the tables of all of these top five European nations and you look at the kinds of clubs that uh, are sort of mid to lower table, you tend to come across clubs that are equivalent to, if not uh, lower than probably W League standard. Um, and so we're seeing a, a number of players coming back, including Jenna, including Lyra Toby, including Emily Gilnick, And all of them have said that the professionalism of the W League far exceeds what they have experienced overseas. And so that's, yeah, I mean, that's something that I think a lot of fans tend to forget. You know, we've sort of done women's football backwards in a way where we've actually started in Australia with the 
structural environments for the players before extending seasons, before adding more clubs, before doing all that sort of stuff. We're actually giving them the support that they need to enter into those longer season sort of aspirations further down the road, whereas you've got leagues like Spain who had to struggle to even get a CBA put together last year. You know, all the entire league had to go on strike in 2019 because they didn't have a CBA, because they didn't have minimum wage. They didn't have any of the things that the W League has had for a couple of years now. So we're seeing a number of players going abroad, doing what they're thinking is best for their careers, going and testing themselves. And it's great. And they're learning a whole bunch of things. You know, they're, you know, broadening their horizons. They're challenging themselves and that's awesome. And they're going to be better players and better people for it. But we're also seeing that the W League is actually starting to hold its own in a different kind of way, perhaps, to the way that we were anticipating. And that is when it comes to stuff off the field. Um, so I'm, and I think that we're going to probably see a number of players returning over the next couple of years to the W League uh, for, for similar reasons. And the thing about it is that these off field environments, this professionalism, minimum wages, medical standards, travel, you know, accommodation, all that sort of stuff. That actually contributes to players being better on the field as well. If you're comfortable in your living space, if you're comfortable in your environment, you're going to play better. So, you know, I, I think that the the sort of the general, I mean, I was part of it as well, the general sort of anxiety attack, the collective anxiety attack we all had when all the Matildas left to go overseas, I think it's, it's starting to become a little bit unfounded um, because I think the W League is starting to find its own strengths and its own space to operate in. And perhaps in the next five to 10 years, we're actually going to see that uh, put the W League ahead of some of these other leagues that are taking a longer time to catch up with these off-field kinds of matters. Yes, spot on, Sam. Um, One thing that the W League, and it's because the Australian sporting landscape is really strong with these sorts of things where it's been ahead of a lot of leagues is things like sports science, um, rehabilitation, injury management, load management. Um, it's something that I remember talking to Elise Keller Knight a couple of years back when she signed for Melbourne City um, about playing in Germany and it was very much you're either fit or you're not. So you're either right to go, do all your training, do all your loads, play your game or you're injured and you're not playing and one of the many, many players can step up and take your place. That's partly a reflection on what the W League has and what maybe some of these other leagues have. But it's also, and for some of our listeners who might not follow the men's game so closely, that is the brutal reality of European football. There are so many players lining up to take your spot. There are so many players who are ready to go hard, who might speak a second language, who might have skills that you don't or are on a similar level to you. Like It's difficult. It's cutthroat. And I imagine for some of our players, not to say that they weren't expecting a challenge because they've all gone over there for a challenge, but it is so hard. There's a reason why you see it with our our boys that so many of them that are young that go over, struggle, come back early because it's a really difficult cutthroat environment to be in. Um, the I guess the contrast that we see with a player who's maybe doing quite all right at one of those lower teams is Laura Brock who seems to be going really, really well at Gingok. But she's an older player. She's had her struggles with injuries. She's tough. She's... You know, she's come back from her own share of issues. I think she is going for that one last chance and has really gone all in. Um, You see that, I think, players in terms of their maturity, like you learn from all these experiences and you may well see some of our Matildas come back to the W League, almost reset and find their confidence again and then maybe go back over again. 
Uh, I think in the long term, we want to see our very, very top Matildas, Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Steph Catley, Hayley Razzo, et cetera, the ones that have been performing, Emily Van Egmond, that have been performing week in, week out for years and clearly needed a new challenge, playing in England, playing Champions League, playing all these different cups. That's exactly what they need. They need to take the next step. They need to be challenged. They need to learn new things. But there certainly is a place for the W League. And hopefully, as we've talked about so many times on this pod, we do see the other facets of the game improve. We get a longer season, get players getting more opportunities because clearly there is a strength there that we have in terms of things like sports science and recovery and athlete management that hold us in good stead. You just go, can we? Can it be turned into an opportunity for some of these more, I guess, mid-tier Matildas and other players to be in a relatively competitive league? There's certainly an opportunity there. But, um, yeah, I think it will be interesting over these next couple of years to see where things even out ultimately in terms of Matildas based in Europe, Matildas based in Scandinavia versus the UK versus, you know, splitting seasons. It's all going to be very interesting over these next crucial three to four years. Yeah, I think for me, I guess as well, when I was thinking about through all the all of this, especially your article on Elira Toby, Sam, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a shit time to be overseas and it's a shit time to be in Europe in particular um, and to not have that support network around you. Um, I don't know, it, maybe at a different point in time, a, a move to Europe would have fitted a little bit differently in these trajectories, but it really was like, for example, Alira Toby spoke about, she probably got COVID, which is one of the shittest things that could happen <laughs> going overseas to play in a different country, like to have, um, like to, yeah, get COVID. Awful. Anyway, but basically I think the appeal of coming home and being in a safe environment and it being around your family and friends has definitely informed a lot of the movements for these Matildas. And, yeah, I think um, it, I think on the one hand it's incredibly brave that a lot of them decided to go out on a limb and to try and push for that next level. But I think it's fantastic that they've got the W League. Like if that's if the W League is your backup option, that's – that's not a bad way to be, I don't think, and to have that support um, around you. So COVID created the conditions for the exodus to happen, but it also made the exodus so much more, like added that additional layer that made it have so much higher stakes. So, yeah. Angela, I think you're spot on there. Like there's not a more difficult year to be away from your family. Um, I thoroughly recommend everyone read Sam's interview with Alira Toby, which gives some insight into what the Portuguese league was like, which certainly isn't one of the top leagues in Europe um, for, for a multiple, multitude of reasons, I think, Sam, based on what you've said, um, yeah. what Alira said in your chat. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's understandable that like, we've had Alex Gummer on this podcast before talking about the difficulties of being away from your family, being in a Europe which is locking down more and more um, while also seemingly not necessarily taking coronavirus as seriously as it should be. And I know you look at some of these players, they've been in and out of quarantine, like Emily Gilnick came back, went back over to Europe, has come back. Like some of these players are going to end up doing a month plus of hotel quarantine over this year. And it's tough. We know that professional football is tough. You go to Europe, you know you're going to be away from your families. But a lot of them, especially the ones that went early, probably didn't think they were going to be signing up for being away from their family for so long. I think Emma, Emma Hayes actually said this about her foreign contingent at Chelsea, that it's 
you know, it's a difficult thing to have to manage. You know that these players haven't seen their family in months and they're not necessarily sure when they will again um, in the current climate. So if players have a great opportunity to come back, especially in a situation like a, a Jenna McCormick where you're, you're struggling with the language and you're not getting a heap of game time and you know there's a new coach coming and you want to impress, you know that you come back, you're going to get at least 12 games if you're fit and firing. And you can, I guess, rebuild that confidence. And as I think we were saying before, go back over if you want to in the future. Like we know that the option's there. And as Angela said, if the W League is your last resort, it's certainly not the worst resort. Absolutely. The Allegra Toby chat was extraordinary. Uh, like sort of the, her potentially contracting COVID aside, the situation that she had to deal with with her club where she had no real counsel or representation from any sort of union in Portugal. The players have absolutely no power when it comes to their rights, uh, when it, like in, in terms of negotiating with clubs. So the club just went to her and said, well, we're, we're releasing you from your contract because of X. That, like they, from what Aliri told me, they didn't have any uh, foundation for that claim. And so she was stuck in this weird moment of limbo where she was just living in Portugal, not able to train, not able to play, but also not able to get home because of COVID. She couldn't find flights. So she was just sort of stuck there. It was amazing. So just, I suppose, to, you know, speaking of McCormick, of bad environments, of how good the dub actually is, Melbourne City will be playing their home dub games down at Frank Hallahan Soccer Complex in Dandenong. So, Harrow, I know you were all in on the news from a whole club perspective, but tell us about it a little bit. Yeah, essentially the gist of it is uh, Melbourne City have, I guess they've, for one thing, they've, they're growing out of their facilities at the, um, the CFA, City Football Academy in um, Bandura. So they've come together. I think Team 11, who were one of the attempted A-League expansion bids, uh, approached Melbourne City about, I guess, wanting to realise their hopes for the area in terms of creating a pathway, having a football team presence in the area. We know that they hoped, well, Team 11 were hoping to get that boutique stadium in Dandenong. It's something that City have been a bit non-committal on, but that's where it looks in terms of the whole club. Essentially, the club is relocating from Bandura, which is in Melbourne's northeast. Uh, to Casey Field, so it's a good hour to hour and a half to more from the city, depending on the traffic. It's a growth corridor, I guess, in terms of a lot of you get new migrants move out there, you get a lot of people who are looking, maybe looking to buy their first house or young families move to that area. Um, so it has been growing for years and years. It's a it's a region that I think sports have tried to capitalise on in the past. Um, AFL had the Melbourne Demons move out there. So City, I guess, provide that opportunity that Team 11 really wanted to target when they applied for A-League expansion. Um, so part of that is going to see Melbourne City W-League play four games there, which um, is great if you live in the area. I think this is something that when I was talking with people today about this overall announcement is something the A-League team at the moment hasn't committed to. They're not you know, playing games out there. If you're going to be the team for that area, you've got to be playing there because Amy Park itself is an hour plus on the train or drive or if you're looking to get out into the northern suburbs or out to an ABD stadium, if you live in the far southeast suburbs of Melbourne, you just can't really do it. So if you're out in that area, fantastic. Um, If you're more inner city or in the north or the west, um, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get to. But overall, it is, I guess, part of 
a big part of this relocating this football club and whether that leads to them having a more southeast identity in the future, I guess remains to be seen. But for a W League purely perspective, if training's going to be out there, you'd think if you're a player, you'd want to live on that side of town at the very least. And there's going to be those four games played. So, yeah, a whole lot going on. Yeah, and I think my initial reaction, I suppose, as you said, Anna, for folks who are used to an abundance of sport at their doorstep, you're like, yeah, maybe no, I don't want to go there. But to, like, to be honest, I, the thing that really appeals about all of this is making sure that you're connecting with the area and building a fan base out there, and that makes so much more sense than perhaps. And I think the bitterness we talked about this last week as well, with the or a couple of weeks ago with fixtures. The heading out to somewhere that isn't your home ground, I think, is a different experience to heading out to somewhere where you know that that's where everything is and that's where the, your your team is based. So I think, yeah, I I don't want to go like drive an hour to Dandenong, but I can suck it up. You know, it's not all about Angela in Brunswick East. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm really excited to see how this progresses and to see. Um, yeah, the development of an identity based in that area for for Melbourne City. Um, unfortunately, it's sad to to not be experiencing ABD Stadium kebabs for this upcoming season, but I I will persevere and I will work through it. I probably should have mentioned before, in terms of what this I guess precinct is gonna involve. It'll be an elite training pitch four full-size floodlit pitches, a two-storey elite performance and HQ building in space um, for a 4,000-capacity mini-stadium, which um, comes further down the line. So you'd think if that stadium gets up and built, that would probably be the home for the WA team, 4,000 people. Um, in the meantime, they're obviously playing at Dan Nolan City Stadium. But, yeah, I guess it is when you look at the wider-reaching things, you'd hope that it can be that classic, um, not to – go full cliche with the you can't be what you can't see but it's a lot easier to be when the footballers are right there outside your door and you can get to games easily as someone that grew up not in that area um in particular but down like the Mornington Peninsula where it was a fair trek to get into the city um you don't get to see pro sport all that often um so if you get young kids um growing up around say Dandenong, Casey, Cranbourne um in the southeast um, especially women's football, I think that's fantastic um, in terms of being able to actually see those players. Um, the thing that, that will interest me is how they go in terms of attracting and retaining players. It is proper southeast, like out in the suburbs, so whether players want to play there. We know that um, Melbourne City in Bandura, for example, a lot of the players lived around North, Thornbury, Preston, Ivanhoe, which is cafe culture, <laughs> easy to get out and um, – get your latte after your after your training so it'll be interesting to see what happens there because I know that um with other football clubs when they've had sort of I guess satellite um training venues or setups uh it's not necessarily always the best for the players in in the sense of being able to really embed into the local area but I think that's a problem for down the track for now I guess it's it's exciting for them that they'll have that permanent home ground for, for the season and we'll hope to kick on from there. In terms of Casey Fields itself, it is actually quite set apart, like it is well and truly out of the way. There's a lot of AFLW games get held out there. Um, as I said, Melbourne Demons uh, AFL, the men's team, actually have trained out there since um, the COVID situation. They've got a long-standing partnership. So it's sort of more 
it's a developing area, but I think it's not necessarily so built up still. It's still quite out of the way, the actual Casey Fields. So I guess that's where the challenge would come in. But in terms of the area, there's uh, there's no shortage of uh, of people out there and uh, certainly a community to, to embed in. It's, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see. But um, another interesting thing to come out of the Zoom today with, uh, well, it was Patrick Isnobo and the City CEO, Brad Rouse, uh, was they got asked about the potential to, I guess, see something similar to that partnership we talked about on last week's pod with um, Calder and Western United. And we're very much assured that there is the work being done uh, with the local clubs in that sort of southeast area. And they hope to see some, I, I guess, different situations um, come to fruition as this as this grows, which I think will be quite exciting in terms of connecting Melbourne City to a local community because it seemed like we said on the pod last week a very smart um, decision, very astute for Western United to do. So it would be great to see another one of our WA clubs really embed themselves in the community and tap into some of the talent that's out there. Um, That's something that's been talked about a lot with the A-League team, but it's just as relevant for the W League. So hopefully we do see some community football links really come to fruition through um, this partnership and this, uh, I guess, ongoing project. Absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about that more, obviously, as the season progresses and as the move uh, happens more. So let's switch it up. Let's get into some boots. Angela, you've got the boot this week. Take it away. Yeah, um, pretty short and sweet boot. Um, fuck cancer, you know, just Yay. giving cancer the boot. Um, and that might seem a little bit random, but it's all due to um, some news that came up in around the FAWSL this past week. Um, Jen Beattie, who plays for Arsenal, she's a centre-back, also um, plays for the Scottish national team. She um, came out and did, did an interview basically um, talking about her diagnosis. Um, she's received a diagnosis of breast cancer. Um, and... Yeah, that that obviously gets the boot, but it transitions nicely into a how good because the support and the love that was thrown her way from not only like her teammates but um, players all across the league as well as um, her sponsor, well, the Puma sponsorship as well. They put Jen Betty 5 on the back of the training tops before the City-Arsenal game. It was all just really beautiful to see. Um yeah, and I imagine for someone in such a scary situation like that to have that kind of response to being talking so openly about something that's very personal and very frightening um, and to have that journey so public, to have that response would be fantastic. So massive how good to the whole footballing community um, and, yeah, wishing Jen Beatty all the best um, as she continues to tackle this. She's um, had a lump removed but will be heading into radiotherapy in the coming weeks. So, yeah. Just a reminder for anyone listening, uh, men, women, if you identify as neither, check yourself. Check your breasts. Check all parts of yourself for lumps, for rashes, for anything that seems unusual. Go and get it checked out. Go and ask a doctor. Don't let it just sit there and think that it's going to be fine. Go and check it out. And also a reminder to get your pap smears, ladies. It's really, really important. It's uncomfortable, but it really matters. So this is sort of a just a PSA to everyone listening to take care of yourselves. And to quote Jen Beatty, she actually said it's important to get that early diagnosis, whether you're 29 or 70. So 
yeah, just to reiterate Sam's message, it's a it's a valid one and an important one for uh, all of us. Absolutely. Uh, it was really, really touching to see the outpouring of love for Jen Beatty. So let's continue the How Good theme, Harrow, uh, How Good. Yeah, this is a classic How Good. Um, we love to see um, when you've got athletes where, sorry, couples where both are athletes and they go out of their way to support each other. We've talked about the Yurtses before, but I love to see from the NFL, um, JJ Watt, who plays for the Houston Texans. His wife is um, Kelia Ohio Watt, um, who plays for the Chicago Red Stars. And when um, the Houston players rocked up, I think for their game, um, it was like, you know, wear a suit, wear your, your best dress sort of outfit. And he's rocked up in what must surely be the biggest Chicago Red Stars um, <laughs> shirt in the world because he's just a massive NFL player. Um, and obviously with, with Watt on the back. So JJ Watt taking the opportunity to rep his superstar athlete wife on a day where it was about showing off. How good? Very much a how good. Sam, a how good? My how good this week, uh, I, I, as listeners will know, as you all know, I'm quite enamoured with the history of Australian women's football and I absolutely loved to see uh, the naming of a new cup competition, the Watson O'Connor Cup between Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, it's the sort of the original, you know, state of origin type of deal. Um, the game was played this past weekend. Queensland prevailed on penalties uh, thanks to two goals scored by uh, Shay Connor, who was on the books at Brisbane Raw uh, last season or the season before. But, uh, you know, Elaine Watson uh, and uh, Pat O'Connor were, they were the, they are the grandmothers of the women's game in Australia. And the more that people know about it through cups like this, the more that uh, we start to backfill the history of the game, the richer and the, uh, I think, the more, um, the more appreciative we're all going to be when it comes to engaging with this community and this sport. So, yeah, the invention of the Watson O'Connor Cup, how good. Very how good and a connected how good. There was a couple of photos of Queensland winning the shootout and there's just, in my opinion, nothing better than the the shot that's taken when that winning penalty goes in and the whole line just, you know, runs, arms out. It's just one of my favourite things. So how good. Angela, you can have another how good as a treat. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my second how good this week. Uh my Secret Santa for my work team got me a women's membership for Melbourne Victory, um, which was just like absolutely spot on, perfect. I remember I was the person distributing the gifts at the dinner and it came, it was just like a folded piece of paper in a clear plastic sleeve and I was like, geez, my Secret Santa hasn't done much here and he, <laughs> he was right there. He was like, uh, yeah, that, I'm your secret Santa. And so and so I opened it and I was thrilled. Um, so, yeah, really happy with that. Um, some excellent graphic design went into it as well. So, Abe, if you're listening, thank you so much. Um, I've never actually bought a women's membership. I don't know if that makes me a fraud or a bad Melbourne Victory fan, it Just, but I'm very, very happy. And, yes, that's my how good. Very, very how good. Uh, another how good. We spent a lot of time talking about Bristol and kind of how 
bad things were, but there are some good things in the Oxtoby household. She's announced that she and her partner are pregnant. They'll be expecting a baby early next year. So congratulations to Tanya and her partner. It's an always we, we've we've done a lot of baby announcements on this pod. It's always good. So how good? Congrats to those two. All right, I think that is enough from us. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave your reviews, leave your tweets and your Facebook comments and Instagram comments and all of it. We're at the Far Post Pod on all social media. And until next week, it's uh, bye for now. So see us.